Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time the Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18+. plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. It's the Autosport Podcast. We discuss John Eric Verne's controversial victory in Chile and get excited about the recently revealed Gen 2 Formula E car. Formula E's debut on the streets of Chilean capital Santiago produced a dramatic race and the first 1-2 finish in the 37-race history of the championship for Technical Cheetah, with John eric Verne just holding off Andre Lotterer. I'm your host, Ed Straw, and joining me to talk about all things Formula E, including what we're expecting from the newly launched Gen 2 car that will make its debut later this year, first is our Formula E correspondent, Scott Mitchell. Now, Scott, how did your long-haired hipster look go down on the streets of Santiago? Well, it's, it's always nice to go to a foreign country and, like, you know, you look like the exotic import, so that was good. It wasn't particularly um, thermally efficient, so I had my hair up for the majority of the trip. Was this a good strategy? It was better, although it did leave me with inc- like v- very horrific pink sunburn at v- right at the top of my forehead. And as I'm sure you're aware, when you t- you come back to a, like a one degree UK at the start of February, it's very incongruous. I remember getting on a bus coming back from Abu Dhabi at about half five in the morning from Heathrow with everyone like freezing in coats on like only short sleeve shirt saying, yep, just come from a desert. I-, I came back from Punta del Este in season two wearing a t-shirt and shorts in 
and it was like the 22nd of December or something like that. So I'm in a t-shirt, shorts, I've got this massive suitcase behind me and I've come straight to the Autosport office for a press day and someone who I will keep nameless said to me, have you been somewhere without a trace of irony or sarcasm? And I was like, no, no, this is actually my late December attire. <laughs> and also joining me is Formula E gamekeeper turned poacher Andrew Vanderberg. Now, you've been to every single Formula E venue across, I think it's 16 cities. So how did Santiago compare? Yeah, um, keeping up my pride record of uh, being at all the new... Uh, venues that formerly has been to it was a, it was a fantastic city but a very cramped environment in which to build it in and uh talking to some of my old friends there the most challenging um, race they've done since season one and, and miami which is the closest formerly come to a race actually being cancelled on the day um they had some real issues actually building that track in the middle of the city and it created some uh, real logistical problems but i think as always they pulled it off and it was a f- spectacular track which as you said in the intro created some great racing so i mean hats off to those guys because the effort that goes into building those tracks for just that one day in those really confined areas uh, it takes some doing. Um, but every time they manage to pull it off, and uh, yeah, well done. And it's nice to have motorsport at a top level going to a country like Chile, which you don't necessarily associate with motorsport beyond Alizeo Salazar being punched. Well, that, and, uh, and he was there as well on, on the grid, and he, he helped them out, actually. He got a big, um, a big round of applause from Alejandro in the Emotion Club afterwards for all the help that he gave them in just sorting things out. You know, if you're a, a Spinal Tap fan, he was the one getting mandolin strings in the middle of uh, downtown Carolina or wherever. And um, no, it's, it's, it's clear that this is a country that really loves its sport, and the, the number of people that turned up there was just fantastic the crowds at the side of the track and i think for formerly a really good sign was that people were doing knocked off merchandise and if you've got knocked off merchandise you're making it yeah they always know where the customer base is so that's extremely encouraging now scott let's have a look at the race now first up i'm sure you'll tell me that the team we're talking about is called cheetah rather than technical cheetah but i know what it's really called i'm going to continue calling it that but it was this amazing battle between john eric verne andre lotterer which came very close to disaster at points yeah, it's always good when you see two teammates go in at each other like that. And this was a little bit of a weird one. It was a slightly offset fight because uh, Vern said after the race he'd had this um, problem with his energy management system at the start of the second stint. So it was telling him he needed to save a lapse more energy than he actually needed to. Um, so the, And the problem is that neither of them had radio communication with their team. So he couldn't get fed back the information that he was actually fine on energy. Uh, so he carried on. Lotter is obviously attacking. The closing speed that he had at the end of the straights was quite extensive because Vern was lifting and coasting more aggressively, which meant that Lotter was like just coming at him in much more than Vern expected. Lotter was closing down him much more than he expected because the gap was like three seconds at one point. So you know when you see teammates going wheel to wheel, nudging each other up the back, defending aggressively from the cars behind as it turns into a five car fight. I mean that was a that was one of the best Formula E races I've seen. Yeah, as well as the internet going down in the paddock, they also lost the TV. So the team actually had no idea that this was going on. And it was only when they'd watched the replay when they finally got home that they saw exactly how close it was. The number of contacts, that time when Lotterer actually got his rear, his front wing linked over the rear yeah. of Verne's. They were going into this course like, they're, they're both going off. This is going to be a How disaster. they kept that out of the wall, uh, I don't know. I mean, it was just it was just crazy. Basically, because I think at the time when you saw it, it looked a bit like, oh, 
Jeb's been a bit too, too aggressive on defence here. But actually, he moves over reasonably like sensibly. It doesn't look too bad. It's just Lotter is coming at him at such a rate of knots by comparison. And as soon as he realises that the, the gap's closing, obviously he throws the anchors on, but Vern's already slowing down more than him and earlier. And it just becomes unavoidable. So he locks up, he hits Jeb. Jeb's obviously locked up because he's trying to keep it out. And how they didn't end up in the wall but then also keep in front of the guys behind them, because obviously you had Buemi and Rosenqvist and then Bird joining in the fun. Like that was, It was just amazing, and you just sort of thought, oh, you, guys, you've got a chance at making history here. Like Lotterer's never had a podium before, Joe's looking for his first win of the season. What are you doing? Like Drive sensibly, and but these brilliant circumstances conspired to give us this amazing fight. Uh, the the Lotterer things were fascinating, because we're all sort of having a gossip before the race, who's under pressure, whatever, and, and it was hard to ignore the fact that over the first three races... He really hadn't delivered. Um, I'm sure Scott can go into a few more details of what happened in that test in Marrakesh, but this was the first time he'd actually been able to show the potential that he's got. And there he was, race-winning pace, battling at the front of the grid. It was a complete brilliant turnaround from someone that I think we all knew had the talent, but just hadn't shown it. Yeah, it looked like a very shrewd move in the end for the team. So obviously in Marrakesh, on the Sunday, you had a rookie test. So every team ran two different drivers that they might have had formula experience before, but they just didn't have a race license. So... Tachita opted for Fred Makovecki, who's done development driving for the original Formula E car and now the second generation car. Um, and obviously Best known, of course, as a Porsche GT Exactly. Driver. Very experienced, successful racing driver. And the other was James Rossiter, who will be known to certainly uh, our English audience, but he's racing all the time out in a series in Japan, Super GT, where there's a proper tyre war, so he does a lot of development driving. And he also has Formula E experience because he's tested for Venturi pre-season. So basically, they picked the most experienced guys they could to run through a lot of setup work. Basically, Tachito is the only customer team in Formula E, and that means they only get three days of pre-season testing compared to 15 for their rivals. And as the team principal of Tachita, Mark Preston, told me, you don't have to be a genius to work out how much of a how big a percentage an extra day of testing is when you've only had three compared to 15 so it's really valuable for them and really valuable and really valuable to help Lotterer as well because he'd never driven the car before signing his deal so he's got three days in Valencia pretty irrelevant circuit to go to and then three race days as well and formerly race days are so chaotic crash bang wallop that you don't really learn very much and he did say on the Friday he came to Santiago feeling like a prepared Formula E driver for the first time and obviously you hear that and you kind of go oh well you know let's see and he absolutely delivered 24 hours later. You mentioned the fact that they're beating the the works team, the Renault Edams team. Obviously, we've been used to being a front runner in Formula E right from the start. Andrew, how big an achievement is that for a team like Technical Cheetah to be able to outperform them so convincingly? I think it says two things, really. I think it, it shows um, what a good job the team and the, and the people have done there. But I think it also shows what a good job Formula E's done with the regulations that someone can come and buy that uh, powertrain off the shelf uh, and there's a set value for it that makes it completely affordable um, and, and it has to have parity with uh, whatever is homologated at the start of the season uh, and are able to run at the front. So even though um, Formula E is literally bursting at seams with manufacturers, they've set the regulations up so that independents can compete. You know, When was the last time that a, a truly independent team was able to win anything at, at that high level? Um, so uh, no, good, kudos to them and especially if you um, if you think back to the, to the beginnings of... Uh, to Cheetah uh, at Hong Kong and Marrakesh last season. They were a bit of a shambles, you know. Vern not getting out for Super Pole because they didn't really understand the rules. Um, they were just in, in all over the place in Hong Kong because they, they they barely done a day's running in, in pre-season. So, you know, in a relatively short period of time, they finished last season very strongly with a, with a double podium in, uh, in Montreal. And 
you have to say at the moment, Jeb is looking very good for that championship. Yeah, I think he's a genuine title contender now. There's always been a question mark over his actual credentials of putting together a season-long campaign. But I think he's driving the best he's driven probably in his career, let alone in Formula E. And he just he looks like an all-rounder now. It looks like the progress that he made to win that race in Montreal last season is, is genuine. He's, he's not been quite at the races, the first, you know, three races of this season because of the team, as I said, just not quite being there in terms of setup, getting everything right. Now they seem to have turned a corner and, and Vern's backing up what we saw at the end of last season. I think he's 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 moved on to that next level as a Formula E driver now. I know John Eric Vern from his Formula One stint, covered his whole Formula One career and very fast driver, but this frustrating inability to string stuff together and a tendency under pressure to wilt a bit. And when Lotter started pushing him, literally in many cases, I was thinking, this is prime kind of Jev loses it a little bit but he didn't and that's the thing that really impressed me so I had that same feeling it's like well if this is what he can now do has he with that little bit of experience and maturity become the driver capable of just letting his ability speak week in week out he's not trying to sort of force the issue or talk himself out of it or pressuring himself he can just focus on doing the job and it doesn't matter if he's under pressure or if the stakes are high he can just deliver which is of course what the best drivers do and and let's not underestimate the significance of winning a race when he had saved a lap's more energy than anyone else he finished the he finished the race he could have done another lap if he if he'd needed to and th- that's that's impressive in its own right but let's not forget as well that this is a driver whose biggest flaw for the first three seasons of formula e was not being able to manage his races properly so he is he's clearly stepped up and it was he knew the significance of that. He said after the race that the big thing for him was the fact that he knew he'd won the race and could have done an extra lap. Yeah, he, he made a real safe, self-effacing joke about that. He said in, uh, in Beijing season two, he went out, did the first lap flat out, you know, and, and actually he killed his energy, you know, and he was easily the worst driver at saving energy at one point. And he was. I mean, the guys that came from F1, the thing they struggled with most of all was was dealing with that energy management, unlike the sports car guys, it's sort of second nature to. But now he's really got his head around it. And like I say, you know, could have done another lap. Well, it's interesting, isn't it, from a championship contender perspective, kind of every, after, the first, after the tests and then after each race, the pendulum has swung, hasn't it? Obviously, Scott Mitchell's pre-season title tip, Lucas Degrassi, who I think is uh, is last of those who've contested all the races, so that something's gone He's wrong. He's the only driver <laughs> who's done all the races that hasn't scored a point. So obviously, I'm looking really smart right now, and I have to apologise to Alan McNish and all the Audi guys because I've pl- I've clearly put the kiss of death on that team. Uh, it's it, it's phenomenal. We're sort of Jody Scheck to 1980 forms of championship defence at the moment, but unlike that terrible Ferrari, it, the car is clearly quick. It's just spectacularly unreliable, certainly Degrassi's version. When he when they string a race together and he nails it in qualifying and he doesn't have a grid penalty and he manages to do a whole race, I think he's going to walk it. Like the race pace has been phenomenal and in Santiago he was from, he'd gone from 13th to in the, the lead group, he was up to 5th, so he would have been in that train at the end, which is remarkable in itself. So yeah, the pace is there, it's just the thing, like, even Audi doesn't know what the problem is at the moment. So, uh, who knows if it's going to be fixed for Mexico or or any race beyond that? And even if it's fixed, basically there needs to be a a ten point swing every race. No, the title is done. To do it. Yeah, so he, there's no. He'll, he'll he'll get nowhere near the title this and season of course, now. Vern seventy one points, Rosenquist sixty six point, Bird sixty one points. So those three have broken away a little bit. Uh, a little bit at the front. They're still relatively early days. But you mentioned Andrew the. The fact that Formula E had got its rules right in terms of the success of the customer team, but the fact that we're well into powertrain competition now, and there's always that assumption that someone would break away and dominate, but we've got, uh, what's this, the fourth season now, and 
we're seeing this swing from from race to race, which is which is remarkable. Yeah, I think um, it's a little bit, uh, Scott alluded to earlier on, the, the race formats would all be in such, so bang, bang, bang. It's not like Formula One where you have those free practice sessions to drain around and, and perfectly hone the uh, the setup for the track. It, it's always an element of guesswork. You know, we, we saw that both uh, pre, free practice sessions in Santiago ended under red flags, which meant no one managed to do a practice start. So there was always a little bit of guesswork there. And, you know, PK and the Jaguar team completely nailed theirs and he just literally sprinted off the line. The, the seas parted in front of him and he, and he could have actually, if he felt a little bit more uh, optimistic, had a, had a go for the lead there. But um, I think it, it, it's, it goes to show that a, a little bit of technical freedom can create interest and intrigue without allowing uh, that level of domination that you see where there's complete technical freedom, like, say, in sports cars or, or Formula One. Talking of technical freedom, the one thing we haven't talked about with regards to technical cheater is the controversy. Now, we don't talk about seatbelts a lot, but this was the first race where there was no minimum time for the for the car change pit stop. Andrew, it, t- it took a long time for that result to be confirmed because there was this investigation into uh, what was termed as a modification to the safety harness. That clearly helped the pit stops. I remember watching when Vern made his stop, looking and thinking, well, I mean, that's a, that's a quick turnaround. So how did the team escape disqualification? And ex- what exactly did they do? Because there was a 30,000 euro fine. So they were caught red-handed. Yeah, I think um, you used the word earlier on modification and it's all the devil of the detail about what actually modifying something is. So my understanding, um, there was uh, something like a cable tie added to the bottom belts, which went around the belt rather than actually attached to the belt, which allowed them to be removed super quickly, which helped. I mean, because Jeff's not the smallest driver, and, you know, it's unsurprising that someone like Rosenquist can hop in and out the cars. I mean, he can probably just sort of slink his shoulders and, like, escape without barely uh, loosening them. But him and Lotterer, who was a, who's a properly big guy, um, both did very quick stops as a result. Um, and it was and Dragon as well, which is why they got a, a fifteen thousand euro fine. They would have been thirty if Lopez had made it around the first lap. Uh, well, actually, made it to the finish, so he went to part for me. Clearly, uh, there was a benefit to uh, to them in terms of the speed of the stop, but because the belts weren't physically modified, there's a reason they escaped the disqualification. So there will be a clarification on the ruling uh, for future races, so there won't be anything like this happening again. They'll have to go back to you know, doing the belts the same as everyone else. And I think one of the reasons afterwards, quite a lot of the teams were a little bit upset. So I understand that a few of them had sought clarification from the FIA trying to do something similar and had been told that that wasn't going to be possible. Yeah, they'd obviously decided that they would were going to risk it. And um, I don't think it affected Jeff's position. Uh, he would have kept the lead anyway unless he'd had a really terribly long stop. But it did help Lotterer probably. But I think it probably did help Lotterer. I think one of the one of the other problems as well is it's not just the fact that other teams sought clarification. As soon as they did that, there should have been a note to all teams say this isn't allowed. But the yeah. other thing as well is the the cars go through scrutineering. They go through the checks and they're deemed legal to race. And I'm told by the team that they went into scrutineering with the belts as they were used in the race. So as far as I'm concerned, it's a terrible loophole to to have, and it's a shame that some one team was allowed to exploit it when others were explicitly told they couldn't. But the 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 onus is on the FIA to to be to be strict and to to, to follow protocol properly, and any pressure or uh, discontent over the use of those modifications as they're called and the fact that it impacted the result and they were allowed to keep a historic one too all blame should lie at the FIA's door really not the team's and certainly when it comes to scrutineering at all levels safety equipment is one of the things they're always looking at so 
you know it's not like you can, you can find an eligibility thing it, it's not if you can get an eligibility thing on the tech regs through initial scrutineering that doesn't preclude you from being picked up later on but safety equipment has always traditionally been yeah, yeah I think okay. I, I agree I agree I think the problem is just the fact that the, the detail in the regulation and with the change is not explicit enough so this is one of the things that got flagged up after the race was how can you know Daniel Apt be stripped of a race win in Hong Kong just for filling out a technical detail wrong but something that actually involves tampering with safety equipment uh that you know get away unpunished well the the thing is the the Audi team broke an explicit regulation when they didn't do that on on Apt's car and this is where the contention lies on the Tachita issue there's no explicit regulation break or totally provable without any doubt that they've changed the homologation of the belt yeah, and I, and I think that was the exactly the grey area they exploited was because the belts weren't physically changed. Well, ultimately, all credit to them. I think any kind of solution involving a a cable tie or a jubilee clip or a bit of duct tape should be allowed in in motorsport. That's a time honoured addition. It would have been worse. If they'd, it would have been worse if they just duct taped the drivers into the car <laughs> and then just like ripped them out. That would have been worse. That would have been genuinely unsafe. Well, we should have a bit. We should have a bit of a look at the regulations to see if that's legal. You never know. <laughs> Now, the other big story in Formula E, Andrew, has been the Gen 2 car. We saw that publicly revealed uh, before Santiago. So how big a step forward is this car? It certainly looks striking. Regardless of the technical specifications, which they're playing quite close to their chests, what they absolutely needed, what Formula E really needed, was uh, a physical manifestation of what they're ch- trying to do as a series. And they needed something that you looked at and you knew it was a Formula E car. You didn't. The current car, even though to trained eyes like ourselves, you, you know it's the Formula E car. To people who don't know motorsport, it's just a, a single-seater, open-wheel single-seater. It could be F1, it could be IndyCar, it could be whatever. The new Gen 2 car, or whatever that is finally end up being called, can only be an F uh, an FE car. You know that that lack of rear wing, that ridiculously dramatic uh, bodywork. I mean, I think it's uh, I I really like it. You know, it's uh, it's imposing and it and it follows the, their philosophy of not needing to worry about whether it's aerodynamically efficient or produces load of downforce. It's about showcasing electric technology and making electric cars cool. That makes electric cars cool. I don't think Formula One is going to integrate the halo anywhere near as well as that has been done, uh, especially with the LEDs and how they're going to use those. I think it's a really bold move for the championship, and I think it'll pay off for them. That's all very true, but Scott Mitchell, you wrote an excellent piece on Autosport Plus, which did talk about how some of the features of the car connect to what they're trying to achieve. Obviously, the big thing in the fifth season, 2018-19 season, is going to be the no car change. So you've got to get range. So that the point about while, while downforce isn't important, efficiency is going to be relevant, isn't it? So, to me, that car revealed a few hints of how they were going to achieve this increased power along with increased range. Yeah, I think there's um, there's substance behind the style, isn't there? That That's the important thing. And one of the issues that's been raised with me before with just some fans on Twitter is, is there isn't the battery isn't double the capacity for the new season. So, just on battery alone it, it's not going to go twice as far so there needs to be other developments so the battery will become more efficient obviously you'll be able to do more with less the powertrains will become more efficient as well but the other thing is that the car is going to slip through the air a lot a lot easier there's going to be less air resistance that's going to help um, I think that'll help twofold because obviously first you're going to have less you have to work everything less to get up to, to to a certain speed and then second of all like when it comes to um, lifting and coasting and energy harvesting you're going to be obviously decelerating from a higher speed so presumably you're going to get a benefit back there uh, and I also think as well because the downforce is going to be largely generated through that monster diffuser at the back and a big floor that starts two thirds of the way forward um, you're going to get 
you're not going to have higher speeds at the detriment of close racing because you're going to have less wake off the rear of the car. So in theory, it's a car that actually plays true to the values of the series as an electric racing series, but also as a series that's promoted very close racing. Yeah, um, following on from that, they are expecting it to make a a significant um, step forward in terms of lap times to the point where they're already looking at a few of the circuits and how they're going to need to be changed in order to accommodate um, the faster car. And, and also one, if you see the side of the, of the bodywork and stuff, it, while it's not physically bigger, it, it's going to take up a little bit more um, real estate on the road. So a couple of the tracks are going to have to be remodeled in order to uh, to accommodate that. But I, I don't think that's any bad thing at all. And I, I can't wait to see a full grid of them all lined up there with their liveries on. I think it's it's a great um, blank canvas for putting a very nice livery on, and I'm sure uh, some of the teams are really going to exploit that. Yeah, I, th- I hope they get creative with it. One of the things you said at the very beginning was how they've integrated the halo, and it does look really cool, to the point where I think someone put a picture of the car with the halo photoshopped out on Twitter. And I was speaking to um, speaking to a couple of people about it, and this you know the agreement is actually the halo looks quite good on this car, and the way they've designed the new car, it arguably looks better with the halo than without it because it fits in with this aggressive swooping image, um, and that's the big thing, isn't it? Like Formula One cars, it's, it's literally a, a 2017 design with a halo plonked on top, whereas this there's been some level of incorporation. I think it's going to make the new F1 cars look a bit old-fashioned when they come out because you know they're just going to be a riff on the same thing with ridiculous amounts of ornamental detailing on uh, rear wing end flaps or front wing end flaps rather and, and just all this yeah tiny little bits of air control rather than having something that has this sort of enormous presence when you see it. It's like it looks fast, you know, it looks dramatic, it looks cool. But it is important this point you alluded to earlier and what you were saying there about how the car encapsulates the the values of a series and what it's trying to achieve in recent Formula E podcasts, which you haven't been on, Andrew, but with Anthony Rollinson and Scott, we've talked about the kind of ideology of Formula E and what it's selling and getting everyone buying into it. And obviously, in the intro, I refer to you as a gamekeeper turned poacher because you worked for Formula E for several years prior to coming back into the environs of autosport. So how much thought will have gone into this? Is this car supposed to be a statement of what Formula E is in that regard? Oh, 100%. Um, when the Formula E was originally launched, there were an enormous amount of sceptics that didn't think it would ever happen. And it was only really uh, through Alejandro's amazing um, vision and strength of character and just brilliance in, in putting things together. I mean, honestly, I can't speak highly enough about how we managed to get that whole championship off the ground um, that, it, that it took place. And because there were so many unknown factors in it, uh, they decided to go conservative on the look of the car. By midway through the first season, when it was clear that this was something that had credibility and was actually a very good idea, they were already regretting not being more aggressive. And that's why the front wing changed to make it look a little bit more cool. Um, But it's always, from that moment on, been in the back of their mind that they had to have this really dramatic look that actually made a, a really big statement that this is... I, 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 when I was there, one of the things I always tried to avoid them saying was the future. This is the future because, it, well, it gave an excuse to people to say, "Well, I'll come back when it's the now." It, it isn't the future; it's the now. When when it launches at Geneva, every single uh, the motor manufacturer there will have some big electric car announcement. They're all pouring pour billions in. Even even Ford, which had had been a long way behind the curve, has announced eleven billion dollars worth of investment into creating an electric uh, range of cars. It is happening. You know, people might not like it. They might not like the sound. Tough, right? It's it is happening. 
And uh, having a racing series which showcases how fast and exciting these things can be is a very, very good thing. Uh, and I think having one that looks cool and sexy is even better. Uh, the next generation of car buyers won't care what a uh, flat 12 mattress or V12 mattress sounded like or, you know, a, a rumbling V8 from the 60s. That's just old. You know, that's a vinyl record. And this is MP4 or whatever streamable high quality download. That sounds very corporate, but no, it, it is true. And we've just had the announcement that World Rallycross is going to go electric down the line. So you're right. The Formula E car is not some nebulous concept car that's easily ignorable at the Geneva Motor Show. It is. It is a, a car of the now. Yeah, and the 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 only part of me that's a luddite is when it comes to Rallycross. Like for example, with the World Rallycross announcement that it's going to be, a, it, you know, it's abandoning Lydon for this year for Silverstone and even though I understand all the reasons why and I think Lyndon is a fan uh, Silverstone is a better world world championship venue than Lyndon I'm furious with it I still haven't accepted it and I never will um because well, that's getting Lyndon into yeah, a Formula E podcast. Yeah, no, I no. never thought so, that would come so, so my, my, my point is this I, I Rallycross is something that I still hold to a very traditional standard but I fully embrace it as the the place where electric racing should go is absolutely perfect for the format you can build super powerful super talky cars that are going to show off just how powerful and how high performance these cars can be you don't have to worry about range because it's obviously a very short short race and also the sound's going to be pretty cool in rallycross because you're going to have a lot more of like brakes screeching four-wheel drifting stones being chucked up sliding through the dirt that that'd be awesome uh, also motor gp for like the electric bike uh, category as well i mean you know Everyone's going to have some form of electrification on their uh, on their lineup soon. Yeah, it's just the way the world's changing. Yeah, isn't we're going to have electric journalists soon, aren't we? Well, we're planning to replace you with that. More uh, reliable. Well, probably better on a podcast as well. <laughs> exactly, less hair all over the place. <laughs> well, the next round of Formula E will be in Mexico City on March the third. So, in the meantime, keep an eye on Autosport.com for all the latest news and features, both from Formula E and the wider world of motorsport, including Formula One. And check out our Plus subscriber area for in-depth articles on all sorts of motorsport topics. And that includes Scott's article that we mentioned about the Gen Two Formula E car. If you want to find out a little bit more about the the rationale behind that car. Well, thanks to my guests, Scott Mitchell and Andrew Vanderberg, and thanks to everyone for listening. If you like what you hear, please subscribe so you get the Autosport podcast to your device of choice on a regular basis. So thanks very much for joining us. We'll be back soon with another Autosport podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music.
Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Sports Social Podcast Network. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.